in uh, 2006, when uh, then Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon, when he decided to undertake what's known in the Israeli circles as the Naktut, which is the uh, unilateral withdrawal of Israeli presence, both uh, non-military, in particular in military, from the Gaza Strip, uh, there was, um, for those of you who followed the events, it was a uh, wrenching, polarizing event in uh, Israeli history. For the first time, they ceded land, not in a uh, peace for, land for peace arrangement. It was done on a unilateral basis. The argument or thought hopefully being that by giving up and walking away, that it would bring peace. Um, that has been proven to be not so correct. Uh, nonetheless, there were a number of um, uh, Yishuvim, there were a number of uh, Israeli settlements to be found in the, in the northern part of the Gaza Strip, one of them most famously known as Gush Katif, and uh, they were uh, removed by the Israeli government and they were resettled. A number of them resettled actually very close to the Gaza border. Um, another one of them, of the group of people who lived there, they moved further south into the Negev Desert. And years ago, I'm talking about 10 years ago, when I was on an Israel Bonds rabbinic mission, so next time when you hear that I'm on a, on a rabbinic bonds um, mission for rabbis, I'm actually doing something purposeful. We went down to one of those um, yeshuvim, to one of those settlements, that was made up of people who had been removed from the Gaza Strip. And uh, their work in the Gaza Strip was primarily agricultural. The work that they undertook in the Negev was, not surprisingly, agricultural. But here's what was surprising. What was surprising was, and it was to their amazement, by the way, was that because nothing had ever been grown, at least in human memory, Nothing had ever been grown in the Negev Desert that all the fruit products that are grown there are considered not just organic, but triple A organic, meaning that people who are looking for the very best and purest of organic foods, they want to have food that is grown on land that was never used for anything else before. What's, where does the water come from to supply it? Underneath the Negev, Israel discovered about 15 years ago one of the world's largest depositories of brackish water. Brackish water cannot be used to drink. It's not potable, but there are a surprisingly large number of berries, vegetables, and flowers that actually thrive with brackish water. So we took our trip down there early in the morning, and uh, we walked through the, uh, through the groves I think that would be the right word, the groves of these peppers, yellow peppers, green peppers, red peppers, and, and the man who's giving us the, uh, the tour, who's a resident there, um, tells, he walks around with a knife and he begins to cut off a pepper for each person who's there. And he says, eat. So I crack it open. It's got this really, you know, like a fresh pepper, it has that snap crack it open. And I took a bite. And I promise when I tell you I have never tasted a pepper like that in my life. Admittedly, maybe it was the location. I mean, I'm, I'm open to any 
explanation you might want to offer that may have augmented the flavor of the pepper, but I, I've never tasted anything like that. And subsequently, since that experience, anytime I watch a TV show or I read something where they talk about how food, first and foremost, great food is made from great ingredients, that the simpler the food, but the better the ingredients, the greater the food. That more often than not, that food ingredients that are lesser quality are loaded up with creams and gravies and all these other things to cover up what actually isn't good ingredients. So the simpler the ingredients and the better the ingredients, the purer it is, the better it is. I'm not here to talk about food, actually. <laughs> Although I am a little hungry now. I actually, what I want to present to you is an idea in its absolute simplicity. And I don't want to pour gravy over it. I don't want to bread it and fry it. I want to put it right out to you because I think in its utmost simplicity, hand it over to you. I think you'll see just how beautiful and unique it is. It comes from the beginning of this morning's Torah portion, this being the, um, the beginning of the third book of the five books of Moses, this one being Parshat Vayikra, the book of Leviticus. Leviticus by and large deals with the dizzying array of laws and ceremonies that surrounded the sacrificial worship in ancient Israel. But the opening words of the portion deserve our attention. I'm going to call upon you, by the way. I want you to open up your large blue chumashim, the large blue chumashim. I promise you will not spend a lot of time in it. The large blue chumashim on page 410, which is the very beginning of the Torah portion for this morning. reads as follows. Vayikrael Moshe and it was called out to Moses Vayidaber Hashem Elav God spoke unto him Me'ohel Mo'ed Lemor from the tent of meeting saying. Seems like an innocuous enough statement. How many times have we heard over the course of the biblical text where God calls Moses? Over and over again, God calls Moses, which makes sense because Moses is the prophet of God. So that makes sense. So what is it about the formulation of this verse that not only is arresting to me that I am sharing it with you, but that successive generations, both from ancient and modern biblical commentators, have stopped and said, whoa, What's going on here? So we're going to break this up into little pieces. And we're going to try to figure out exactly what the problem with this verse is, or maybe perhaps not problem, perhaps the better word is question. So let's try to understand the question. What is unusual about this verse? What's unusual about the verse is that first it says that God called Moses, Vayikra El Moshe, and then it says that God spoke to Moses. So that's the first thing that's triggering because I'm telling you now that, that through, throughout the entire 24 books of the Hebrew Bible, there has never been and there never will be a formulation like this ever again. It is singular and unique. Unique. 
So first God calls Moses, and then God speaks to Moses. And then, as if it wasn't surprising enough for people who pay attention to such things, you get the twist, and it goes like this. He does it, God does, in the tent of meeting. The thing that concerned or alerted or bewildered um, rabbinic interpreters from the earliest time is this kind of double philology, the kind of the calling and then the speaking. And then it says specifically as if to emphasize it, it was in the tent of meeting. And Rashi, the great biblical commentator who lived more than a thousand years ago in Worms, Germany, France, that area around the Champagne Valley area, he, he kind of compiles all the questions, and he says it like this. So now what I want you to do, close your chumash and open your sidur. And your sidur to page 356. You're going to be there soon anyway, so it's, uh, it's very opportune for you. We're all interested in saving calories, I know. On page 356... This is sung traditionally when the Torah is put back into the ark. I'll leave it for you to figure out why we would sing this when the Torah goes back into the ark. But let's take a look. On the second paragraph in English, it reads as follows. Kol Adonai Shavera Razim, that the glory of God, the voice of God, thunders out it makes the waters roll wide. The voice of God resounds aloud across the flowing tide. Call Adonai Shoverazim, that the voice of God shatters the cedars, the strongest of trees. And that God's voice shatters even the strongest of the cedars themselves, the cedars of Lebanon. And the ancient rabbis who knew this psalm by the way, we sing this once again, when the Torah goes back into the ark. The ancient rabbis knew this psalm, and they asked the question, when God talks, how does it not spill out beyond the tent of meeting? Like Moses is standing there in the tent of meeting, it says that God spoke to him in the tent of meeting, which means to say that if you were standing outside the tent of meeting, that you wouldn't have heard it? Or that if you were standing five miles away, you wouldn't have heard it? That you were going out and filling your car up with gas or going to the store to buy milk? And you wouldn't hear it? And a wonderful teacher of mine, a great Israeli theologian, Yishau Leibovitch, he once said something really important to this point. He said that the, there are things in life that unless you put yourself in the right place, you'll never find what you're looking for. That the expectations that things will come to you, that the truth will be made apparent to you, that somehow if you wait long enough that you'll discover things is a lie and fallacy that humans tell themselves over and over again. That faith doesn't come by seeing revelatory great things. That belief doesn't come because God talks to us. 
faith comes because we're determined to place ourselves in a place where we can find it. That even though, as the old story goes, when I was a little kid, I learned this, this song, and I'm sure you, too, you did too. You know, Hashem is here, Hashem is there. Hashem is really everywhere, up, up, down, down, right, left, and all around. It's incredible to remember you, something you learn as a child. Here, there, and everywhere, that's where he can be found. Even though God's voice goes everywhere in the world, don't assume that you're always going to be able to hear it unless you put yourself in the place where it can be heard. The simple beauty of this message is is that the things that enrich our life, the things that will make your life meaningful and good and deeper and better, the things in life that remind us that even though we are weak, that we can have great strength in our lives, even though we think we have much, it reminds us that what we have isn't anything unless we have things inside of ourselves. To find those things, you must go to the places where they are found. Where are those kinds of places? A place like this. In a very short time, our mask mandates will drop. To varying degrees, people will choose whether or not and how and where they wish to continue wearing masks. It is certainly everyone's right and duty to choose for themselves how they wish to. But this is a signal for us, a wonderful, beautiful signal to us as the spring arrives, for us to return back to the places where we can hear such a voice, where we can find meaningfulness and goodness, we can find God that is in the midst of other people, in the midst of community, in the midst of being together. Remember this, when good things happen in our life or when bad things happen in our life, in the moments of pause during them, we look at each other, sometimes we'll pour a drink, and what do we say before we drink? L'chaim, to life. But remember that the word l'chaim is always in the plural. We don't say l'chaim. We say l'chaim. Because life is always better, deeper, truer in the presence of each other.